Thanks for joining us today. We believe God is going to do great things in your life, and we want to hear about it. Send us your story at mystory@summitsa.com and let us know what He's done for you through this ministry. If you'd like to partner with us or bless us with a financial gift, go to summitsa.com and give an amount that works best for you. Now enjoy the message and have a blessed day. If you have a Bible, smartphone, iPad, tablet, turn with me to Mark 6. Mark 6. And welcome to those that may be watching by live stream this morning. Let's give all those folks watching today a big applause. Come on, Summit family. Good to see you. The kingdom of God is a paradox. A paradox is a truth that appears to be contradictory. It violates our natural order and way we do things. For example, the way, to, to, the way up in the kingdom is down. Humble yourself, I will exalt you. The way in the kingdom of God to get is to give and you shall receive in same measure as you give. Totally contrary to the natural order because it's supernatural. The way to win is to lose. And on and on and on. It's like, well, it doesn't make sense. It's supernatural. That's why it doesn't make sense. All we can do is reason with our five natural senses. But if we're born again, we have spiritual senses as well. And I hope we have a little sense too that we understand God's way of doing things is totally different than the world's way to do things. And if you want that result, you're going to have to learn to obey Him and trust Him. That's our lesson for this morning. Quite simple. Mark chapter 6, beginning in verse 34. When Jesus landed and saw a huge crowd, He had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. So He started teaching them many things. By this time, it was late in the day, so the disciples came to him and said, you know, Lord, this is a remote place. It's already real late. Send the people away so they can go to surrounding countrysides and villages and buy something to eat. But he answered, you give them something to eat. And the disciples said, say what? They said, Lord, that'd take more than a half a year's pay. Are we to go and spend that much on bread and give it to them to eat? How many loaves do you have, he said. Now, we always want God to do something. And the first thing God will always ask you is, what do you have? What can you do? What can you give? What step can you take? What, what some line of action can you do? First thing always in a miracle is, what's in your hand? What, what have you got? What's in your pocket? What's in your ability or skill? So he turned around and says, how many loaves you have? Go and see. When they found out, they said, five loaves, two fish. Then Jesus directed them to have all the people sit down in groups on the green grass. So they sat down in groups of hundreds and fifties. Taking the five loaves and two fish, looking up to heaven, Jesus gave thanks. He broke the bread. Then he gave them to the disciples to distribute to the people. So he also divided the two fish, two fish, two fish among all the people, and they all ate and were satisfied. And the disciples picked up 12 basketfuls of broken pieces of bread and fish. And the number of men who had just eaten was over 5,000. What do you need more 
of? Good question this morning. Maybe patience, could be strength, could be a job, career, could be time, could be money. But whatever you need more of is what we're going to look at this morning, because the Bible teaches through this simple miracle how God turns a little into a lot. The most famous miracle in the Bible is the feeding of the 5,000. Now, actually, you know if you've been around church a little bit, there were more than 5,000 because they only counted men in those days. So they, there were women and there were children. So conservatively, there were 15,000 people. On the big side, could have been 20,000 people. That's a lot of folks. It's the only miracle recorded in all four of the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the feeding of the 5,000 or 15,000. So in this miracle, look at some of the steps on how God begins to turn a little into a lot. Listen to this statement because I'm going to mention it four times. Whenever there's a need sensed by a few, and each individual accepts his or her responsibility to do what he or she can with what he has, regardless of the odds, God works a miracle. That's proven in every miracle of the Bible. When there's a need sensed by a few, everybody doesn't have to buy in. And each individual accepts his or her responsibility to do what they can with what they have, regardless of the odds. That's when God goes bang, shabam, and something incredible usually happens. So let's see how that truth is evident in our story this morning. So our first step in turning a little into a lot is first to identify the problem. Identify the problem. The problem's pretty obvious. We got 15,000 people in a remote location with nothing to eat. I mean, there's no McDonald's, no KFC. What are you going to do to feed these people? Every miracle begins with a problem. If you don't have a problem, you don't need a miracle. Now, I'm a spirit-filled believer, but could I just slap a few goofy charismatics who talk about miracles like you can get them on demand. You cannot. I'd get one every day if I could. That's not, that's not even a biblical promise. But we do see miracles in many instances and on many occasions. However, if there is a natural solution, God expects you to have a brain and use it. If you're spending more than you make, you don't need a miracle. You need a brain, and you need to cut up some credit cards and stop. It's that simple. So I'm trying to, for some of you that come from different church backgrounds, I'm just trying to weed out the goofy here and the flaky here. Sometimes there, it, God is the sum of all wisdom. So every invention, every technology, every uh, new antibiotic, everything that's been invented since the time of man, God's given wisdom to man to create it for the benefit of mankind. Now, when you've got a cure, you don't need a miracle. I've discovered to my, you, you guys, have, I've never missed a weekend here, unless I was overseas preaching, never missed one. Sick. I hadn't always felt great, but I don't, I don't get sick much. I get sick of some folks sometimes, but I don't get, <laughs> uh, just, just playing with you a little bit, just kind of loose you up, just relax, okay. 
I mean, that, but I'm, I, I'm quite serious about that, but I work hard at it. Now, I discovered I had walking pneumonia uh, maybe not quite a year ago because I was coughing, and I went to see one of our doctors over there. To, I, that was the last thing in my mind. I've heard of walking pneumonia, but I had it. And I thought, what? And that, that's not really good, especially when you're older like me. And I, I thought, dang. Well, I could have said, well, I'm just going to believe God for a miracle. I didn't. I just got a shot. Seven days later, it's all gone. I didn't, didn't break stride. Now, but now some people get goofy about that. You don't need a miracle if there's a natural solution. That's what I'm trying to say. And sometimes if you're mistreating your wife, you don't need a miracle. You need to straighten up. You need to repent. You need to get in a marriage seminar, and you need to learn how to, to live with her in an understanding way and to serve her. You need to learn that. And if you don't, a miracle ain't going to help you because you're still an idiot, and you're going to just be an idiot when you go back home. Okay. That's not in my notes, but it was in my heart, so whatever. I just wanted to solve that problem, all right? So every miracle begins with a problem. You got that much. It could be a physical problem, spiritual problem, a material problem, a financial problem, but it has to be a legitimate problem for God to work a miracle. Second, accept responsibility for the problem. Accept responsibility for that problem. God wants you and me to take ownership of a problem before He does anything about it. Verse 35, by this time it was late in the day, and the disciples came to Him and said, this is a remote place. It's already very late. Send the people away so they can go into the surrounding countryside and villages and buy themselves something to eat. So now the disciples have seen the problem. They're concerned. They said, look at all these people. They're hungry. What are we going to do about it? And they're now sizing up some responsibility for this problem. Now, I'm sure Jesus saw this need coming before it ever occurred way before the disciples recognized it. But notice he did nothing about the problem until the disciples got concerned about the problem. When they accepted responsibility and identified the problem, Jesus then began to act. So maybe you're having a problem in your marriage, but you don't even recognize it yet. Well, you're not going to get any miracle or divine intervention until you acknowledge you got a problem and decide, Lord, I need help to do something about it. So God won't work a miracle until you finally recognize, I've got a problem. But He waits on you to get concerned and accept responsibility before He does anything about it. I was thinking God saw that this church was going to need land long before any of us ever knew there was going to be a church out here all the way from our old location. But He waited on us to become concerned about it, start searching for it, accept responsibility for it, start negotiating for it before He ever released it to us. And that went on for a year and a half or more. Then God began to intervene, and then God granted it and gave it to us. But He waited on us to become concerned and take responsibility before He moved in to help us. That's part of how God matures you, makes you grow up. And notice that the disciples finally see the need. They come to Jesus and said, hey, do something about this problem. There are 15,000 starving people out here. And I love Jesus' response. Verse 37, so cool. You give them something to eat. <laughs> Just throw it right back at them. You do it. You give them something to eat. Now, that was an impossible assignment. How would you feel facing an impossible assignment and a situation? And Jesus says, you be the solution. 
So he's getting them to accept responsibility. It's impossible. Even if they had all the hamburger helper they needed, how are they going to feed 15,000 tacos and get them fixed that quick? Not only was it practically impossible, it was financially impossible. In verse 37, the disciples do a little cost analysis and found out it's going to take eight months' pay to feed all these people. Lord, we can't afford that. We don't have the money. Financially, it's impossible. Well, their math was right, but their faith was wrong, terribly wrong. God will often ask you to do something that appears to be impossible. Jesus said, you feed them. Now, why did he do it? Why does he ask us to do the impossible on occasion? Well, because it requires faith. I mean, duh. If it wasn't impossible, we could do it on our own without God. One of the problems with being wealthy is that you can solve most of your problems. You can buy it. You can sell it. You can manipulate it. You can exploit it. And it gets real easy to become complacent and dull and carnal because you can, that's the problem of being wealthy. Nothing wrong with being wealthy, but that's the problem you face. You can buy everything, and you can buy people, and you can exploit people, and you can manipulate. It goes on every day in our world, doesn't it? Sure. And there are certain wealthy people that manipulate churches and people and boards. Ain't going to happen on my watch. I want, we need people with wealth. We need people. I mean, if everybody's broke, it's going to be hard to be a blessing to others. Hello? Yeah, there's no, there's no, there's no benefit in being broke and poor at all. So notice he stretches us by asking us to do the impossible. When is the last time you took a risk? When is the last, you did, last time you did something for the first time? Some of you hadn't stretched in years. You haven't taken a step of faith. You haven't increased your giving. You haven't jumped off to say, I'll take a, a home group and open my house to some people, or I'll get involved in one, or I'll serve somewhere in a minute. You haven't done anything but expand the borders of your bottom sitting there. And you're not going to see anything more until you take a risk, step out of the boat, and do a little water walking. You're not going to see anything. You're comfortable. You're complacent. You're going to sit, soak, and sour. That's what's going to happen. So if you want an adventure, you're going to have to take a risk. It'll be emotional, relational, financial, material, but it'll be a risk. If you want God to do something that you've never seen before, you've got to do something. If you want an uncommon blessing, it requires an uncommon sacrifice. Otherwise, you'll just sit around and wish and wish and wish and hope and hope and hope, and nothing's going to happen. Why? Because God's going to say to you, what you got? What can you do? What's in your pocket? Yeah. yeah. Uh, a couple of problems here. There, uh, look at the reaction to people when there is a problem. A lot of people procrastinate. Verse 35, by this time, it was late in the day. They'd been putting it off the whole day. They saw it coming, but they weren't dealing with it. All day to see the problem, and they wait till the end of the day. They did nothing, and Jesus did nothing. He just waited on them. Some of you are waiting on God, and God says, oh, no, dude, I'm waiting on you. I'm waiting on you. What difficult choice or decision are you putting off? See, procrastination never solves a problem. It just makes it worse. Girls, if a red light comes on the dash in your car, tell your husband. Tell him. Pull over. Stop somewhere. Somebody can look at it. It's a warning sign. It won't get better if you keep driving, especially if it's a gas light. Don't do that. 
There's been a couple of occasions. Cindy asked me to get gas for her car, and I get in and start it, and the light comes on. And I'm freaking out. I'm thinking, well, okay, did it just come on, or has it been on? And will I even make it to the station? And I go, I go on the dark side real quick. Oh, ugh. any other husbands have that problem? Yeah, yeah. And, and if you got daughters, that's a problem, right? You give them a gas card, you give them a wash card, but they don't know how to use it. Uh, so don't put it off. My friend Chris Estes with AA says, denial is not a river in Egypt. Don't get into denial. They procrastinated. They waited to the end of the day. Or we pass the buck. Verse 36, send the people away. Out of sight, out of mind. Pretend it doesn't exist. Maybe we can ignore it. Maybe somebody else will do it. Just pass the buck. So basically, the disciples were saying, it's not our problem. We didn't ask these people to come out here and listen to Jesus. They came on their own. They got a problem. They ought to solve it. It's not our responsibility, not our business. If they're hungry, let them go find their own food. I think one of life's greatest cop-out statements is, it's none of my business. If you got a friend wasting his life, it's your business. If you got a kid going in the wrong direction, it's your business. If you've got somebody you care about and you love, and they're about to make a wrong decision, it is your business. Love cares. It does. I know you get sick of hearing it and probably don't, but we have some beautiful single women that are moms in here, and I don't want them to make a mistake twice, and I want them to get the best bang for their buck. And I, I, I'm like, a couple of us are like brooding vultures saying, who's she dating? Who, he got a job? Can he Is he go to church? Is the guy got a brain, got good values? Is that going to be a, is he, can, can he take care of her? Is he going to live out of her checkbook and her excellence supporting those kids? I'm always thinking about it because if I can at least press you to consider it and think about it before you pull the trigger, there's a chance you might do well. But I do want to get, so it's not somebody doesn't like you or rejection. It's they love you enough to say, oh, I don't want you to hurt anymore. I don't want you to cry anymore. I don't want you to be lonely anymore, but I want you to get a good deal. Don't buy the first car on the lot. Check them out. Check out the family. Check, check his checking account. Can he handle money? How much is he having to pay out? Can he support you if you don't work or you get pregnant and can't work? I'm thinking the big picture here. I'm not just thinking a good role in Iraq. I'm thinking about the future. Right? Is that too deep for some of you? Don't procrastinate. Don't pass the buck. Number three, people worry about the problem. Oh, do they ever, especially Christians. Verse 37. Lord, if we did that, if we fed them, it's going to take eight months' pay. Are we going to spend that much on bread and give it to them to eat? Now, the anxiety of the disciples goes into overdrive, doesn't it? And all they're thinking is, well, what if? What if? How will we ever afford to feed this many people? How will we transport the food and keep it fresh? Yeah, who's going to clean up the mess like Woodstock after we feed them? What's going to, what are we going to do to underwrite the liability insurance for this thing? It could take weeks to get a health permit for this. What if? What if? What if? That's not faith. That's doubt and unbelief. 
worry, worry, worry. Typical reaction. So we procrastinate, we pass the buck, and we worry. And what's funny about it is Jesus is the solution. And he's sitting right there. This is the man who can turn stones into bread. And they're looking for Colonel Sanders. They weren't thinking. They were worrying. And worrying is the opposite of faith. It never solves any problems. Only makes them worse and makes them bigger the longer you let them go. Worrying doesn't work. So what do you do when you realize you need a miracle? Here we go. You do what you can do. You do what you, not what you can't do, you do what you can do. And you do what you can do with what you have. Does that make sense? With what you have. What's in your hand, Moses? Uh, Go see how many loaves and fishes we got. A little boy here. What do you have? Well, I just have a little flour and a a little bit of oil. Give it to me. What do you have? So you do what you can, and you do it with what you have. And God waits to see what we're going to do with what we have before he creates a miracle for you. Verse 38, how many loaves do you have? Go and see. When they found out, they said, five loaves, two fish. And the hero of the story is not these disciples. It's this little kid. He's the only guy that brought a sack lunch to the party. He brings a happy meal, five loaves, two little, two little fish. They ain't big fish. I caught a fish in Costa Rica this big, and it fed us all. These are little bitty fish, right? But he gave it to Jesus, and Jesus worked a miracle. So notice what's unique about this kid that will help us turn a little into a lot. Number one, he gave what he had. He gave what he had. He didn't give what he didn't have. He gave what he had. Five little tortillas, two little fish. Wasn't much, but he gave what he had. Never underestimate what God can do through ordinary people with limited resources that are given to Him in faith. You don't have to have a rich person support you. That really goes on in church. They become your Jehovah Jireh. They become your controller. Bad. No, God Almighty is my Jehovah Jireh. I will not sell my soul or put my neck in a leash to a rich person. And I want to pray for God to prosper you so you can prosper and be a blessing to your family, to the church, and to the kingdom of God. But don't you ever let anybody manipulate you because they have money. That's to say that God can't supply it another way. He can. He always does. So God isn't looking for ability. He's looking for your availability. The Bible says He's chosen to use the foolish things of the world to confound the wise. That lets us all in, doesn't it? Sheesh. He uses ordinary people. I know a lot of people more intelligent than me, better talented, better strengths, fewer weaknesses, and a lot more money, but they're not available. Hello? You know, I was when he called me. I still am today. I wonder if you are available. If you get available to God, he'll wear you out. Yes, he will. You say, use me, Lord. Don't get offended because he will. He will use you like you can't imagine. If you want to be used by God, if you want to see the power of God in your life, you just get available. And it doesn't take a lot of talent. God loves to do extraordinary things through ordinary people. And this little guy says, okay, Lord, I'm going to give you what I have. Second, he gave all that he had. He gave five loaves and two fish because that's what he had. He didn't hold anything back from God. 
You remember Ananias and Sapphira watched all the people selling property, giving the money to the church at a time of great need, and how people were applauding and celebrating them, and they thought to themselves, hey, I want some of that backslapping applause. And they sold a piece of land, got more for it than they imagined, and they thought to themselves, well, shoot, we ain't going to give all that. Let's keep some. And then they brought it to the church and gave it, faking everybody out. To, but the Holy Spirit told Peter, they, they kept back some. So Peter reasoned with him. He said, hey, it was yours. You sold it. It was all yours. The problem we have here is you're lying. You're letting the people think you gave it all, and you held back some. And he killed them. Now, if God did that today, we'd have every EMS that's available in San Antonio around every church in San Antonio. <laughs> picking up all the dead liars. <laughs> yeah, that would not be a good time, right? So he gave all that he had. If you want a miracle, don't hold back from God. Don't hold back from God. What are you holding back? Well, God, I'll give you anything except this boyfriend. I know it's not good for me, but I like it. And I'm not going to, I don't think I could get anybody look as good as him or whatever. And yet, what I've discovered in life after all these years of living, every time I let go of something valuable or precious to me, God's had something better for me, but you never get to see it till you let go of what's in your hand. You won't know. He won't, you won't find it. You won't find that better job. You won't find that better future until you're willing to let go. We used to sing in a Baptist church when I, uh, when I was young. I remember singing, all to Jesus I surrender. And actually, uh, today, it's probably only 3%. 3% to Jesus I surrender. 3% I freely give. I surrender 3%. How, what an insult. What an insult to Almighty God who gave His only begotten Son. Yeah. See, I'll give you anything, Lord, except my career, except my money, except my time, except this one little thing I want to hold on to. So notice the thing about this little boy. When God asked him for it, he didn't hesitate. He gave what he had. He gave all he had. I remember... You know, when God asks for it, He wants it right then, not six months later, right then. Uh, uh, Jesus told the disciples one day, go into this village, you're going to find a new calf, a, a, a donkey, and it's never been ridden, it's a colt, unloose it, and as you lead it away, if the owner, <laughs> if the owner doesn't choose you, if the owner says, what are you doing? You say, the master has need of it, and it'll be okay. Now, Put that in today's language. Jesus talking to you. Look, go down to Denny's. There's a four-door blue Mazda. There's keys in it. Take the car if the owner runs out and asks, what the blank are you doing? You tell him the master has need of it. That might take a little faith, huh? But the, but the point is, when he said the master has need of it, the guy said, fine. What is it you can't let go of? What is it you hold on to? What is, fear, I might not have enough. I might not have enough. My God shall supply all your needs. Say, it's just rhetoric. It doesn't mean a thing till you can let that thing go. Over and over and over. Over and over and over. I, you know, I, I say this without apology, without shame, and absolutely proud of it. 
I, I fought God for three years before even starting this church because I had a good job, a low-interest home on the intercoastal waterway at a golf community. I had it made. I flew airplanes. I was living the life I want. I love it. And I love Jesus. And then when God said, I want you to start a church, I thought that is the worst thing I ever heard in my whole life. That has got to be not God. I bind you, devil. That, that's how I felt about it. And the, I've made a lot of sacrifices, but the biggest one I ever made was to leave my income, my home, low interest, beautiful community, friends, and the lifestyle thinking it couldn't be better. And finally, I just wanted you to know I wasn't nice. I fought this thing. This church was started by a risk taker. This is not a place for people who want to live safe, sweet, kind, unoffended, risk-taking. I put my neck on the line and all the valuable assets I had and sold it and said to God, if that money runs out, I'm out of here. That's how I'll know whether you put me here or you didn't put me here. Well, we're still here after 30 years. See, but I'm trying to say to you, because some of you don't know us, that's how we started. And I've seen some remarkable breakthroughs. I've seen some remarkable miracles in my own life, but all of them came out of sacrifice. And everybody wants the miracle, but nobody wants the sacrifice. And I, I, talking to somebody the other day, I said, what's your number one fear? He said, that I won't have enough, that I won't have enough. I thought, wow, how, what, a, what a bondage to live in. That the God of heaven who loves you, who says, I'm gonna, I have, my plans for you are good, not evil, to prosper you, to give you a hope and a future, that God is not going to take care of you? You need to find this out now, and we'll shut the door on the church, turn it into a mosque or something, because that's not the God I serve. I've got a, I've got a history with Him. And you can't have that kind of faith until you start off with little pink dumbbells, two pounds at the gym. You ain't going to start off with 400 pounds. So you, you got to get a history with God. And when you've watched God kill a lion and kill a bear, you're confident He can take down a giant. If you've been faithful with God with $10, He can take care of $100. If He can take care of $100, He can take care of $1,000. If He can take $1,000, He can take you on up to $36 million. But some of you are just going to sit there forever thinking, well, I don't know. I don't know. It's a trust factor. Do I trust God or do I not? And if you can't trust Him with, with your life, your talent, your time, or your money, I can't believe you're going to sit there and trust eternity, your soul. Huh? Wow. If he's unfaithful with that little stuff, how could he be trusted to take care of your soul in eternity? And notice third, he gave immediately when God asked for it. He didn't hesitate. He didn't doubt. He just gave it all as soon as he asked. Now, why don't we do like that? I think a couple of reasons. Number one, we're worried we might end up hungry. I won't have enough. If I give Jesus my lunch, what am I going to eat? I need every cent I've got just to make it. If I give it all to Jesus, what am I going to live on? I remember when Cindy and I wanted to build a house, we, she knew exactly what she wanted. I just wanted the house, but she wanted a certain house. And so it, we rented and rented and rented, and it was, it was over 10 years before we actually owned and built a house in San Antonio. We rent like the Israelites. We just were renting all over the place. And I remember on two occasions when we, uh, we had a guest speaker and we were doing something sacri 
sacrificial to release a miracle. I remember we had $16,000 in a savings account to, for, for the house for carpet and drapes and furniture. We were saving. It was a little gradual savings. And I remember, but we still didn't have the house. We had architectural plans we had paid for, at, but I could buy a house, but I couldn't buy the house she wanted. So we sewed into it and we gave what we had. And we did on a couple occasions. And, you know, the thought is, you'll never see that again. But it, took, it didn't come back in a week. It didn't come back in a year. But in two and a half years, it came back, and she did get the house built that she wanted. It's just been a remarkable thing. Uh, but you won't find that playing safe. You won't find that holding back. It's not being foolish, but it is risky. It's just important to know. Uh, I remember one time... Randy Ross came to me and said, I would, this is years and years ago, uh, old location, uh, your taxes, your estimated tax isn't enough. We got to come up with, uh, I think it was $25,000, and he wanted to come see me, and I thought, that's a bad thing. If you want to, you don't want you, any accountant or IR, you don't want anybody to have to come see you. I thought, that ain't good. And when he told me the news, he drove away. The phone rang. The phone rang. And I picked it up, and it was Christian Faith Center, and they said, we just sold to Alaska Airlines the building that we haven't been able to move, and we made a fortune on it, and we want to divide it among the three people that have made the biggest difference in our church, and you are one of them. And I says, how much is it? $25,000. And before he got off the parking lot and got to his office, I called him, and I said, Gotcha. My God shall supply all my need. And I've been living that way 73 years. And you can too. He's never, ever failed me. And he won't fail you. That's important to know. Secondly, I think we think, what's the use? It doesn't make much sense. How can my little bit help? 15,000 people, five loaves, two fish. Hey, I might as well get full, eat it. It's just a drop in the bucket. It won't solve the problem. It's insignificant. How can my little bit help? And that was one of the great apostles' reaction, Andrew, in John 6, verse 9. Well, how far will that go among so many? What a great man of faith, right? He's one of the guys you probably want to put on a statue on your dash, Andrew. Well, what is this five loaves among all this people, Lord? No faith, no confidence at all. Now, remember the statement, when there's a need, sensed by a few, and each individual accepts his or her responsibility to do what he or she can with what he has, regardless of the odds, that's when God steps in to do supernatural things. So they don't say, this isn't going to help much. They say, I'll give it because it's what I've got if I want to activate some kind of a miracle. When I tell you later what we need to finish out our MPR, our multi-purpose room downstairs is beautiful. Some people think, well, what's my little bit going to do? It's so insignificant. I don't have much to give. What good is it? It's going to help. Well, if your little and my little start combining with a few thousand other littles, it's a lot. See, it, 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 that's, the, that's the beauty of putting things together. And God multiplies it. And I'm tired of looking at that unfinished room down there. And I'll tell you about it in just a second because the boys back in the tech room and video room, they, they're they full of unbelief. They just don't believe I can finish that thing out this weekend. And I said, I'll just bet you I can. I bet you God can anyway. But I'll tell you about that in just a few minutes, all right? 
Everybody lives on different levels, so you have to do what you can. And so here's 2 Corinthians 8, verse 12. The most important thing is to be willing to give as much as we can. That's what God accepts. Nobody's asked to give what he doesn't have. So it's not equal giving, it's equal sacrifice. I mean, Jesus said, if you're not faithful in a little, you won't be faithful in much. And then he says, to whom much is given, much is required. Don't you think that if I were living on uh, $19,000 and I'm tithing and honoring the Lord, that would be one level. But if I were making a whole ton of money more, wouldn't you expect me to be doing more? Uh, Some of you sucking your thumb, you don't know. Well, I'm going to tell you what God says to you. If you've been doing really well, he expects you to do more. You pick up the slack. You've got the ability to do more. He expects you to do more. You're a steward of more if he's given you more. You're a steward of everything you got. But if God says too much is given, I expect a lot more. You're going to be graded by God because of how much he gave you. Talent, ability, skill, finances, resources, influence, all of that is a stewardship of impact. And God says, I gave it to you, and I'm going to hold you accountable for what you did with it. Now make it count, multiply it, put it into the kingdom, put it to work, bless people with it. And so uh, when we've given our best, recognized the problem, accepted responsibility for the problem, we stop procrastinating, we don't ignore it, we don't pass the buck, we don't worry about it. Instead, we do what we can with what we have and we give our best to God, expect a miracle, expect something supernatural. Verse 39, then Jesus directed them to have all the people sit down in groups on the grass. They sat down in hundreds and fifty groups. They took the five loaves, the two fish. Jesus looked up to heaven. He broke it. He gave it to the disciples to set before the people. He divided the two fish, two fish among them all. And they all ate and were filled. So evidently when Jesus is breaking off that bread and handed it off, the main thing must have just been supernaturally reappearing. It would have to, right? It would have to. It just kept multiplying. Now, here's something interesting. Unsown seed can't multiply. God only multiplies seed that is sown. You can't pray for a harvest for a seed you didn't sow. That's dumb. There were seeds in Pharaoh's uh, tomb And archaeologists took those seeds that were 3,000 years old, planted them in the laboratory, and they grew. But they did nothing until they were planted. So so you you can't get a harvest off of an unsown seed. And everything is a seed. Love is a seed. Kindness is a seed. Time, talent, money is a seed. Forgiveness is a seed. You sow it, God will multiply it, and it'll come back to you. Ephesians 6, 8 says, whatever you make happen for others, God will make happen for you. If you can't afford a vacation, but you can help somebody else get one because it doesn't require that much, but you could facilitate it, then you're sowing into your vacation because God says, what you make happen for them, I'll make happen for you. Joseph worked on the dreams of Pharaoh, and then his dream came true. But he had to sow into somebody the, the, butler's, uh, the butler's dream and Pharaoh's dream, and then his dream from 17 years before finally came true. You see? You have, to, you have to sow a seed into the area you need. 
Well, I need friends. Well, get, we're going to let you hook up with connect groups out here. We need connect leaders, open a home. We need you to go out and get signed up in the area code or area. And you, I've put people together who are now lifelong friends, and they didn't know each other from Adam in this church until we hooked them up, and now they've become lifelong best blood brother friends. And that can happen to you. And then you find people who can open doors for you in those relationships. Medical doors, uh, opportunity and business doors, all kinds of doors that open that give you favor. But no, bless God, I'm a Texan, Lone Star State. Ain't nobody, I'm going to hook up with nobody. Well, God says, you're a fool. That's what he says. He who isolates himself, Psalms 19.1, seeks his own desire and rages against all wisdom. Mm, how about that? You can become like Ted Kaczynski, the Unabomber who lived alone in his cabin, or the kid who kills people in school who lives alone in his room with his little uh, weird weirdness. When people find people alone, they tell parents it's not good if your kids are loners. It's not good for people to be loners. God sets the solitary in families, right? So He wants you there. So expect a miracle when you do what God says, and you, you, you start to sow. So Jesus broke off the bread, and then he broke up the fish, and I guess they all thought it was impossible. But if you say impossible, listen for a laugh from heaven, because God laughs at impossible. It's not in his vocabulary. He can make a 90-year-old woman pregnant and a 100-year-old man uh, virile. Is that a good word? I, I, I. He can do all that. He can open the Red Sea. He can feed you with dirty birds, ravens. He can, do, he can back up the sun 10 degrees. He can hold it still. He can actually raise you from the dead. He can do whatever it takes to make whatever he promised come true. Jeremiah 23, nothing's too hard for God. Jesus said all things are possible for him who believes. With God, all things are possible. That's pretty inclusive. No matter how big your problem is, God can handle it. If he can hold the sun still, if he can back it up 10 degrees... You got a problem with the refrigerator or car? I think he can handle that. Come on. He can handle that. You do what you can with what you've got and expect God to take it from there. But God is not going to do first until you do something first. God says you give. That could be time, money, uh, love, forgiveness, uh, help with somebody. You give, and so shall you receive. And every seed, Genesis 1, verse 11, reproduces after its own kind. So you want, whatever you want to reproduce, you sow that seed, and that's what God says it'll reproduce, okay? So if you need friends, you sow friendship. Well, I, I don't have any friends. I just think the church is not, is not friendly. No, you aren't friendly. See, God says you must show yourself friendly, Correct? I'm, if I'm not misquoting the Bible, tell me. You show yourself friendly. Matthew 9, 29, according to your faith, be it unto you. <laughs> I get to choose what God does in my life. I can believe him for a little. I can believe him for a lot more. But he'll do whatever I tend to think he will do or can do. According to your faith, be it unto you. And that teaches a principle all through Scripture that no matter what area it's in, you can't outgive God. Whatever you give, whenever you give. Something in faith to God, the blessing's incredible. And here it is, rolls through. Verse 43, and the disciples picked up 12 baskets full of broken pieces of bread and fish, and the number of people who had eaten was, we said, about 15,000. 
I imagine the little kid left home with five loaves and two fish, but when he came back home, he had 12 baskets full. You think mama was shocked when he came back? His cup was running over. Anytime you give sacrificially to God, you never get back what you gave. You get back more than you gave. And again, whatever area that's in, okay? Don't just use that for money, but any area, right? You can't outgive God. When I say, Jesus, I don't have much, but I'm going to give you what I got. What do you have? That's all he asked me. I'll give it to you. And more comes back always, pressed down, shaken together, and running over. Jesus could have done the miracle without the kid. He could have done it without the disciples. He could have rained down bread from manna from heaven. He could have, but that's not how he works. That's not how he works. He always works the miracle through people, always. He uses people, and he blesses you by letting you be an instrument of a miracle. So he didn't need the boy or the disciples, but he chose to do it because it's his method. So remember as we close, when there's a need, sensed by a few, each individual accepts his responsibility to do what he can with what he has, regardless of the odd. That's when God steps in to do the supernatural. So what are you going to do about your problem? Procrastinate? Forget it? Hope it just goes away? Pass the book? Let somebody else do it? Let somebody else pay for it? I got my own commitments. Don't expect me to sacrifice. Where am I going to get that kind of money? How can I afford that? Or we can accept responsibility and do what we can with what we have and activate a miracle. Thanks for joining us today and may God richly bless you. For more information on Summit Christian Center, visit summitsa.com.